Our text is that familiar part of 1 Corinthians 15 near the end of the chapter, beginning at verse number 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It has been said that some people only go to church twice a year, usually at Christmas and at Easter, and one might wonder why. I know that I do. And while it might be that some people see these as sort of feel-good holidays, perhaps not even holy days any longer, We need to recognize and on this day be reminded that both of these holy days address and deal with the issues of sin and evil. What is sin? Perhaps we need to be reminded. It is the rebellion of humankind against the call to reflect the image of the Creator into the world. It is the refusal to worship the Creator. It is the replacing of that worship of the Creator that call with worship, with elements that we find in creation. And in some ways, I think we can find that that, in fact, has happened on these now holidays in which God no longer seems to be the focus of our worship, but rather things that we want, things that we wish to possess. What is evil? This is a definition of evil that I used when we went through a series on evil some years back. It is the force of anti-creation, anti-life. It is the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. You see, because human beings are powerless to damage or attack or destroy God, what in fact human beings do is engage in a campaign to attack, damage, and destroy that which is a revelation of who God is. God has revealed himself in his creation, and particularly in humanity. We are made in his image. And so if one cannot attack God, then in fact we should perhaps attack his image in a human being. So we must be confirmed in the conviction that evil has a profound spiritual dimension even though those participating in it or fighting it may not acknowledge that truth. When we went through the series, I think one of the most important questions that we asked and tried to answer is, how has God responded to evil? Well, the Bible, the Holy Scripture, is in fact an account of that. And we find a pattern of divine action. We find him judging and punishing evil, which is usually what most people think about. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And then there is the great flood for Noah's generation. And then there is the confusion that we find at the Tower of Babel. But we also see that God sets limits to evil. He allows people to continue to do what they do. He allows them to choose to do evil. And yet there are boundaries. And in his grace does not let them be as wicked as they might possibly be. 
But above all, what we see is that God promises and in fact brings in moments of grace, new moments of grace. We might see them as new creation. The event that comes to mind is the incarnation. It fits in perfectly with God's response to evil. And perhaps this is why we find people rejoicing at Christmas after a fashion. They fail to recognize that we are the problem. That's why God sent his son. Um, But for all the joy that we find in Christmas, I think we forget that it is, in fact, a solution to a very deep and profound problem. I mentioned this several Christmases ago, and so it may be familiar to some of you. But Christmas means, literally, the condemnation of the human race. The coming of Jesus into the world condemns our pride, which is the cause of so many of our problems. It is a condemnation of our belief in ourselves. After all, if we can save ourselves, why do we need a savior? It is a condemnation of our belief in humanity, our belief in the human race. We like to believe that, in fact, we are capable of solving all our problems. We're in the process of development. We are progressing, if you wish. Yeah, there have been problems in in the past, but we're moving past that. Um, We're getting beyond that. Those were primitive times. Those were pre-modern and medieval times. Of course, we had some pretty bad things that happened in the 20th century as well. The answer to this is that the birth of Jesus tells us that the human race cannot save itself. Humanity is completely helpless. It is lost and requires redemption. God sent a helpless baby, born of a virgin, into the stable there in Bethlehem. And there begins a new creation, if you wish, a new humanity. He is the second Adam. Christmas is also a condemnation in our belief in outward show and splendor. This is how so many people judge greatness. Such a way of thinking is what led to the fall. The human way of estimating one's value is so often based on what we can see, on the outward appearance. But when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, came into the world, he was born in a stable with the animals. Here is the Son of God. He came in a way that, I believe, seeks to unmask our foolishness, the foolish belief in and worship of outward show, that we can see what is great and what is good. Because he came in such a humble way, was he any less the son of God? Not at all. It is the outward appearances that are sheer folly. And Christmas is also the condemnation of belief in human wisdom. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. There the believers have become embarrassed. They have become ashamed of the gospel because, let's face it, it talks about someone dying as a common criminal, that he, in fact, is the savior of the human race. The reality is our thinking is quite different from God's, from the Creator's. And when he came into the world, he came in a way that we could not on our own imagine to be true. It is so contrary to the way we would have done things. But I want to be clear. The coming of Jesus not only condemns our wrong thinking, it also has positive aspects. It teaches us to think in the right way, to think as God thinks. 
And one of those things that we need to think about, how does God think and how are we supposed to respond to evil? Here I believe we should look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned the death of Jesus, not only because it is that time of the year, but it is a story in which we see the living God dealing with evil. And in the crucifixion, we see Jesus winning the victory over the powers of evil. We could, in fact, spend the rest of our lives talking about the death of Jesus. It has so many dimensions to it. He died in the place of his people. He paid for the sins of his people. He purchased the redemption of all creation, not simply his people. The death of Jesus was an act of love. And the sufferings and the death of Jesus are examples of how we are to love one another. And here we have just scratched the surface. We should be clear that any view of the cross should have a multidimensional component. It isn't just one thing. There are many aspects to it. For us, it deals with our past. It deals with our sin, our guilt, and our shame. But it also deals with the future, the promise that God has accomplished something on the cross that will finally and fully be realized in the future. Well, what about the present? What does the cross of Jesus tell us about right now? And here it is, I think the personal meaning of the cross should become clear. Sinners that we are, often carrying the weight of our sins of the past, you may remember from the prayer of confession, remember not the sins of my youth, those things we have done in the past. There's also the anticipation of the future, spend eternity with God. But for right now, what we have is forgiveness and new life in the Spirit. In the Lord's Supper, which we have just celebrated together, we see the first, forgiveness, but we also see the second, new life in the Spirit. You see, the problem of evil is not some abstract, theoretical, philosophic issue. The problem of evil is me. It is you. We are sinners. And God has dealt with that problem on the cross in the person of his son. We are called to live lives that follow the pattern of death and resurrection. That is repentance, we turn from our past and we turn to Christ and here we have forgiveness. The cross is not simply some example to be followed. It is something that has been done, has been achieved and is to be put into practice. We are the people of God. We are to live out and put into practice that Jesus has won the victory over evil. He is, in fact, the solution to the problem of evil. In his passion, the events that we remember this past week, Jesus suffered the full consequences of evil, evil from the political, the social, cultural, personal, moral, religious, every aspect, every dimension, all rolled up into one. If you wish, evil was put, just bound up and thrown at the person of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus took it. And in his act of redemption, he took all that evil had to throw at him, and evil exhausted itself. 
As a result, there is now a new creation, a new covenant. There is forgiveness, there is freedom, and there is hope. If you read the epistles in the New Testament, two themes emerge with regard to the problem of evil. First of all, Paul tells us that in the death of Jesus, God condemned sin. He passed sentence on it, and he executed sentence upon it. God's great no to evil, if you wish, that evil is evil and is wrong and must be dealt with, has been acted out in the person of Jesus, the person who could and did represent his people and the whole world. The second thing that we find in the epistles is we are told that evil, in a sense, did its worst and was exhausted. It, it, it sort of, it's like a tidal wave that came across against the person of Jesus, but then ultimately just was spent. It had nothing more to offer. In First Peter, we read, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then in Luke 23, one of the words on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It is forgiveness. Forgiveness in the face of repentance. By the way, this stands in stark contrast to the Jewish tradition up to that point. Uh, were the heroes of the Jewish uh, nation in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament as they are being tortured to death, as they are in the process of being martyred, called down God's vengeance on their persecutors and told them of the coming judgment. But in fact, Jesus calls for forgiveness and he defeats evil, the immediate result of which is resurrection. We shouldn't see the resurrection, by the way, as sort of a reward for a really difficult job well done. That Jesus did what he was supposed to do and he gets rewarded by being resurrected. Stop and think a minute. If evil is anti-life, if it is against life, then death is the great enemy, as Paul tells us in our text today. If evil has been defeated, then death has no more power. Thus, the resurrection of Jesus was not an isolated miracle, but rather the the proper and the appropriate result of Jesus' successful confrontation with evil. By the way, if you read the Gospels and read of the ministry of Jesus, you see that he is constantly confronted with evil. There are those who argue, and I would agree, that during the time of Jesus on earth, we find demon possession on a scale unmatched before or after. Because here is the conflict between the Son of God and the forces of evil. But what we see is grace. The resurrection brings to us grace. Just as we see the call of Abraham after the Tower of Babel, and we have the dove with the olive leaf after the flood. It is God's act of new creation after judgment has fallen on evil in the old creation. But there's something else that I've already mentioned. To speak of resurrection is to speak of the forgiveness of sins. It is to be released from sin. It is to be released from death. Since Jesus died as a representative for Israel, for the whole world, for all of creation, his death is under the weight of sin. It results in the release of those who have been captive. 
by sin. Forgiveness of sins means new creation, since the anti-creation forces of evil have been dealt with. What we find in the Gospels, if we read them carefully, is that evil is taken very seriously. Unlike many who think that there really isn't that much wrong with the world, um, the Gospels tell us that there is something quite seriously wrong with the world. Jesus Christ is the solution, but this means, in fact, that there was a problem, that there is a problem. And so we should acknowledge that at Christmas and at Easter, there should be a certain humility, if not humiliation, in accepting both the diagnosis that we are sinners and the cure that is found in the Lord Jesus. What do the Gospels tell us about the diagnosis and the cure? I'll just mention three events that we find in the Gospels. The first is a cleansing of the temple. Jesus expresses his judgment on Israel's God, or the judgment of Israel's God on the temple, which was supposed to be the focal point of their worship. This is what made them the people of God. But in fact, they had refused God's call through the prophets. And now they go to temple, but it is in many ways just a marketplace. And nothing true or real is happening. In the Last Supper, we see Jesus expressing and explaining to his followers what his death is all about. He is the shepherd at this meal who gathers his sheep for the last time before going off to do for them what only he can do. He gives his life. And then there is the crucifixion. The Gospels each give us different details, small stories, minor characters that are involved in this event. And it helps us when we take this all together to draw out the central meaning of the plot. And that is that evil in the world has done all that it can. And the creator of the world does all that he can. And Jesus wins the victory. We need to stop a moment and think. Perhaps we are not persuaded that there is evil in the world. I I actually think that no one really thinks that. I think people say that. It's simply a matter of asking them what they think about certain things. I'm reminded of a story, I'm sure I've told you, that after 9-11, there were certain people, particularly within the academy, who were quite upset with President Bush because he referred to the evildoers and this evil thing that they had done. And so at Rutgers University, they had a uh, four-faculty member uh, panel who did an open discussion with the students. And one of the panelists began to realize that there was something different about his view versus theirs. And so he asked them, because they were quite offended by, by the use of the word evil, and evil doers. He asked them, do you believe in evil? And he, they would not say that they did. He used the, the, you know, the old standard, what about Hitler? You know, that's what everybody does. I mean, he's the, you know, what's the expression, low, low-lying fruit? I mean, he's the guy. And they wouldn't even say that. But they did agree that President Bush was evil. You see, people do think that there is evil in the world. They simply define it in different ways. But if there is no evil, then there's no need of redemption. There's no possibility of redemption. Why would we need to be redeemed if, in fact, 
There is nothing wrong with us. There is no problem. Postmodernists and their philosophies through deconstruction have reduced human beings to mere genomes, things written by genes, hormones, environment, institutions. And so in the end, there is no need or possibility for redemption. If we have no identity, if we have no responsibility, if there is no evil, then why do we need Christmas? And why do we need Easter? Why do we need to be redeemed? It is worth noting that one of the things that has disappeared, I think, in the last century, even in the church, is a belief in original sin. The biblical doctrine tells us that all humanity is fallen, that we are fundamentally flawed, we are alienated from our creator, we are in rebellion against the one who made us, but we're also alienated from ourselves. We just can't seem to get it together within ourselves. And so for many in the last two or three generations, the gospel means nothing because there's nothing to be saved from. In order to be saved, you must be lost. In order to be redeemed, you must have something that needs to be redeemed. In order to be, you must in fact have a fixed identity. And if you have no identity, and if you have no sense of having something of value to be redeemed, and if in fact you don't believe yourself to be lost, then the gospel means little or nothing. It becomes sheer sentimentality. We must fight for the humanness of human beings. That each one is made in the image of the creator. And we must acknowledge the existence of evil. And that on this day, we remember the victory of Jesus over evil. When we went through the series, I, I uh, mentioned a threefold progression. It's not original with me. I think I got this uh, from N.T. Writer Os Guinness. First of all, usually we ignore evil when it doesn't hit us in the face. We, we, just, we seem sort of blasé. We're not quite sure that there is such a thing as evil. But secondly, when we are smacked in the face by evil, then we are surprised. We're Where did that come from? How did that happen? And then the third thing is, as a result, we oftentimes react in immature and dangerous ways. You see it in society at large, that certain crimes are seen as horrific, and others, well, you know, they're not bad. Perhaps it's just me, but um, I'm sort of puzzled by the nomenclature of hate crimes. I assume that you don't murder someone because you love them. I assume that there's a certain amount of hatred there. But somehow, because we are surprised when people do violent and vile things, we have to make it even worse or respond in a way I think that is less than correct. As God's people, who know that forgiveness has been achieved on the cross, one of the ways that we are to respond to evil is forgiveness. And it is here that Jesus takes people in an entirely different direction. Perhaps we are so familiar with it, those of us who have grown up in Christian homes or have been Christians for a while, we sort of assume that everyone believes in forgiveness. But in fact, that is not the case. Let me just read to you several quotes. And one is from Rabbi uh, Arthur Hertzberg. Here talking about the Holocaust. 
The crimes in which this SS man has taken part are beyond forgiveness by man and even by God. That is, not even God can forgive this. The God who had allowed the Holocaust did not and does not have the standing to forgive the monsters who carried out the murders. Abraham Joshua Herschel said, It is therefore preposterous to assume that anyone alive can extend forgiveness for the suffering of any one of the six million people who perished. According to Jewish tradition, even God himself can only forgive sins committed against himself. And then Primo Levi, who sadly took his own life, said when an act of violence or an offense has been committed, it is forever irreparable. But do we not hear the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. A former Archbishop of Vienna wrote, the question of whether or not there is a limit to forgiveness has been emphatically answered by Christ in the negative. Of course it can be forgiven. You remember the story, what happened between Peter and Jesus. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. But you may be thinking, how do we get from our response to evil to forgiveness? Simply this. Let me ask you. How has God responded to evil in your life? Has God forgiven your sins? Is not the reality of victory over evil seen in forgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, we hear the words, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Consider what we see in our text today, where in verse number 55, Paul seems to be taunting death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You see, although Paul as he writes this, lives in the physical and perishable body, Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus. He knows what is yet to come. Death will be defeated in the end, as it was in the life of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is proof of this, and this is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Death is powerless over the dead, in that God himself will raise us from the dead and God's people will be changed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. In the meantime, death continues to sting. And the sting of death is sin. I found this interesting. I've taught through 1 Corinthians, I think, three or four times now, the, the time I've been here at Melrose. And yet I'm always amazed when I am reminded of this, that the word sin only appears, I think, five times in 1 Corinthians. It's really quite remarkable because the Corinthians were messed up in major ways. And yet we find it in chapter 6, in which Paul talks about the sin against the body in chapter 7 with regard to marriage. But in this chapter, three times. In verse number 3, that Christ died for our sins. In verse number 17, that if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. 
And in verse number 34, come to your senses and stop sinning. In writing this letter, Paul has basically been talking about the sting of sin without mentioning sin. The Corinthians have not been living as they should, and there have been consequences. But Paul is not defeated. He is not pessimistic. I think I certainly would be. But in fact, when we come to the end of this chapter on resurrection, what we hear is triumph, the taunt of death. And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls on the Corinthians to stand firm, to let nothing move them, to always give themselves fully to the work of the Lord. And he ends with the amazing words, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so I go back to where I started. This is Easter Sunday, one of the two services that people may attend in the year. And this past week I've been thinking, and I just could not imagine why. I think in part because the meaning of those holy days has been forgotten. At Christmas, I remind you of the words of the carol, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. For all the supposed joy that we are to have during Christmas, I hear the words of the parable, we don't want this man to be our king. And so, yes, we're sort of giddy about the giving of gifts and spending time with family, but the reality that the king has come and we are to submit to him has been lost. We forget that a savior came because we were in need of salvation. And we see how pathetic and how weak our situations are that the one who is sent to save us comes as a helpless infant. What about Easter? Easter is, in fact, the sign of God's victory over sin, the victory over evil, that anti-creation, that anti-life force, the force that opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. This is what Jesus came to defeat. In a culture that we live in that seems enamored with death, whether it be of the unborn child or of those who are seen as less than productive in society, why would people even want to celebrate Easter, that which celebrates life and forgiveness? Easter is the recognition that Jesus has defeated evil. But in order for that to happen, this means that there must have been and that there is still evil in the world. Death has been swallowed up in victory. By the way, Paul here is quoting from Isaiah 25. Oh, death, where is your victory? He's quoting again from the Old Testament, from Hosea 13. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, as God's people, why should we celebrate Christmas? If it means the condemnation of the human race. Why should we celebrate Easter? 
because in both of these we see God's grace and God's forgiveness. And I can't help but wonder that in all the hoopla that occurs on these holidays, that now this is, I don't know if this is something new, but now there are toys for Easter. I can't help but wonder if somewhere in the back of people's minds there is a recognition that there is something different about this day. That there is something gracious about what happened at this time. By God's grace, may they come to see that there is forgiveness. But you know, you cannot, well, a person who does not admit that they have done wrong, I, I don't think is easily forgiven. I've mentioned before, if someone says, if someone does something against you and they come to you and they say, I'm sorry, and you say, well, that's fine, or okay, then everything's fine. But if you were to say to them, I forgive you, I find that people don't like that. They don't want to be forgiven because to be forgiven means that they've really done something wrong. They much prefer to say, I don't worry about it, or, or that's okay, that, you know, no biggie, you know, whatever. At Easter, we hear the words, Father, forgive them. And we hear that Jesus has been raised from the dead, which means he has won the victory over evil and he has obtained forgiveness for us. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray together. Our Father, we seem to like the prescription. We don't like the diagnosis. We like that Jesus has come into the world. I'm not so comfortable with the fact that he came because of the evil that is found in our lives, in our hearts, because of our sins. That he died because of our sins. And he has provided forgiveness for us. In a world that likes the forms, but not the meaning behind it, may we, as your people, be reminded of the truth behind the resurrection of your Son. What it means in our lives and the lives of all your people, what it means for creation, one day will be redeemed. I thank you that on this day we can remember that you raised Jesus from the dead. You've raised him to your right hand. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this through Jesus who was raised from the dead. Amen.